We're dealing with what was referred to as the morning psalm, and it was a psalm that was written during the time of um, uh, Absalom's rebellion and and some of these uh, issues that were going on. And uh, Psalm 4 is kind of a companion psalm uh, to Psalm 3, and a lot of people refer to this one as the evening psalm. If the Psalm 3 was the morning psalm, then Psalm 4 would be considered the evening psalm. You'll see why as we get into it a little bit further. But let's go ahead and read it. It's eight verses long and can be uh, broken into three uh, major sections that we'll take a look at this morning. But let's read it through in its entirety first. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. O ye sons of men, how long will ye turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity and seek after leasing Selah? But know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There be many that say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. Uh, The official title that people have given this (coughs) is to the chief uh, musician. It's written for the chief musician. And... Uh, and it says on Neganoff, uh, which is a stringed instrument. And so it was a psalm that was supposed to be pray, played for that. And uh, the chief musician was the one that was given the responsibility. There were over 200 uh, musicians that were assigned to uh, Solomon's temple uh, when it was built. But David had started the uh, process of delegating specific people uh, to be the um uh, the musicians for the time of worship, and they were very well skilled in music. They were um, to, to be uh, well developed on certain instruments, and uh, he appointed over 200 of them. And when Solomon built the temple uh, after David's reign, they were uh, kept that role and came into, and it became part of their uh, worship process to have these psalms sung in these music um Choices made. There was a, a great joy in their worship, and so uh, one uh, one fellow that I was reading that wrote about this particular psalm, and he said this: the joy of the Jewish worship was so great that they needed music to set forth the delightful feelings of their soul. Isn't that a wonderful statement to think about when we come to the things of God and we begin to dwell and meditate and worship Him, that it delights our heart so much that. Our expression needs the music to be able to express uh, adequately the delightfulness of our heart and our joy and the feelings of our soul. And, boy, I'll tell you, that ought to be a lot of, a lot of Christians could use a healthy dose of that, couldn't they? Uh, the day we live, there's not a lot of joy in the hearts of people. Um, we, we come to worship or we come to spend time around God's Word or we come to church sometimes, and we almost look at it as a funeral dirge. We almost think, boy, that's... I gotta go. I gotta do it. But where's the joy? Where's the joy in being saved and being able to learn about God and being able to read His Word and understand it? And even during times of conviction, 
there ought to be a gratefulness in our hearts for that. And uh, there ought to be, out of all the people in the world, there ought not be any person in this world more joyful than a Christian. Someone who's been redeemed from their sin, the penalty of their sin, and uh, certainly something we have to be thankful for. And so uh, these chief musicians, I wanted just to take a kind of a rabbit trail moment to, to express that. You'll see that quite often if your Bible has the titles uh, above the chapters of who they were written to or what the purposes were. Uh, a lot of times you'll find the chief musician listed. And that's what the, pol- the, the, the goal of that person was. That's what their, uh, their, their responsibilities were, were to lead the worship. Uh, in the temple of God. And there was a, a sacredness to it. There was a skillfulness to it. Um, they did it with great joy. And uh, it was certainly a, a wonderful thing. And uh, I love reading the Psalms. They're just such a blessing and encouragement <coughs> to you. There's three main divisions, not as easily divided as the first three Psalms that we've studied. But verse number one is a section unto itself. And this is where David pleads to God for his help praise to him. The second division is verses 2 to 5, and this is where David uh, begins to reason with his enemies, and he, he, he does this by uh, making and drawing a contrast. He draws a contrast between them and then what the third section deals with, which is verses 6 to 8, uh, which is David's contentment and peace. And so he draws this contrast between the wicked, his enemies, those that are foolish, uh, and their their well-being, their mindset. And then he talks about his peace and his contentment in God, and he draws this comparison, it seems like, between the two sections. And so those are the three basic uh, sections. So I want to start in verse number 1. We're going to be a little while on this <coughs> because we're going to take and do a sidestep study of, of something that I think is vitally important and is a help to us. And uh, this is the first chance in the Psalms that we have to really uh, hit this issue uh, strongly. But the psalmist begins by praying to God. And by the way, isn't it wonderful that going to God in prayer becomes the first thing that we do? Before we address our enemies, before we address the concerns of the heart, to go to God in prayer first. And there are several things that he does. He says, Hear me when I call, O God. And by the way, uh, when he says, hear me when I call, O God, it's not because David didn't think that God heard him. What he was asking God to do is to give his attention, his focus. Uh, it's like when you talk to one of your kids sometimes. Jonathan, every once in a while I'll say something that I'm expecting a response from, and he doesn't respond, or most of the time he does, I just can't hear because this ear is not there. I'll be like, listen, I need you to listen to me. Well, that doesn't mean that he wasn't listening before. It just means that I want him to perk up and pay attention. And this was David's desire. Not that God doesn't do that, but this was David's desire. And he said, hear me uh, when I call, O God, of my righteousness. And then I want you to notice that he, he bases his <coughs> prayer on the past mercies that God has shown him. He says, thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Notice he says these things that have happened in the past, you've enlarged me, you've, you've shown me mercy, you've shown me grace when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. And I think there's a lesson to be learned there for you and I, that our faith is strengthened when we remember God's faithfulness to meet the needs in the past. 
What a joy it is to know as we look back and we reflect on those things that God has already done for us, how it helps to strengthen our faith so that we know that He's going to meet that need again. We can trust Him with our needs. We can trust Him with the circumstances of life, the blessings that we have. And so uh, he, he begins with this prayer. And uh, one commentator said it this way, he raises his Ebenezer. And I, I liked that. I liked that idea. In the, in the song that we sing, Come Thou Founds of Every Blessing, one of the verses speaks of this. And I've explained it a time or two to folks in the church, but I want to spend a minute on it. We're going to take a minute to look at it. Because really what David is doing here in verse number 1 is exactly the intent of Samuel when he uh, did this, this process in the Old Testament. And uh, the song that we sing, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing, it talks about, Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by myself I've come, and I know by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. And we, we sing that verse, and a lot of people are like, I raise my Ebenezer? What does that mean? That's, a, that's an odd phrase. Uh, but that's a Bible phrase. And I want to take a minute to look at it because the process of David's prayer largely resembles this, and it's a great lesson for us to learn. So let's take a minute and look at this, if you will, for, uh, if you'll turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7, and we'll look at the account of this. 1 Samuel chapter 7, and if you don't get anything else out of the Sunday school lesson today, maybe this will be a, tr- a great blessing to you. First <coughs> Samuel chapter number 7. And uh, the setting here is Samuel is a young prophet. Uh, Eli uh, is the elder prophet that has kind of mentored him along. And uh, so Samuel has, uh, of course, been chosen by the Lord to be uh, the next prophet of Israel. And the nation of Israel was in a turmoil of uh, rebellion against God. They had been so for many years. The Philistines were overrunning them and were starting to have uh, victories over them as God's judgment to help bring His children back to Him. In one of the previous battles, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. And this was something that the uh, children of Israel thought would never happen. I mean, this is God's Ark of the Covenant. This is what had the Shekinah glory of God uh, resting over it. This was uh, a symbol to them of God's presence with them. And the Philistines caught the Ark of the Covenant in the battle, and they kept it for seven months. And uh, finally, in verse number uh, chapter 7, verse number 1, when they get the Ark of the Covenant back, and the men of Kirjath-Jerim uh, came and fetched up the Ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified uh, Eliezer his son to keep the Ark of the Lord. And it came to pass, while the Ark abode in Kirjath-Jerim, uh, that the time was long. For it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So, after God brings the ark back to Israel, that you would think, boy, that 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 got them back where they needed to be. No, no. For twenty more years, they rebel against God. They still will not humble themselves. They will not come back to God. And so, for twenty years, this ark rests in this city. And Samuel spake, verse number three, unto all the house of Israel saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, that's all God wanted, was for them to return to Him with all their hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth, and serve the Lord only. So they finally, after 20 years, do this. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. 
They gathered together to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So they finally come back to the Lord. Daniel, or Samuel sets apart a day in Mizpah for them to fast and to pray and to kind of make it an official event of them coming back to God. And while they're doing that, the Philistines find out about it and say, this is a great time to go against them because they're busy serving their God. And so they come against him. In verse number 8, the Bible says, And the children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, <coughs> that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering, holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. So during the actual time of the offering, here come the Philistines. I mean, just at the worst possible time, the most vulnerable point that they could uh, smite Israel is when they're coming to battle against them. But notice what it says in verse number 10. But the Lord thundered with great thunder on that day upon the Philistines, and this comforted them, and they were smitten before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came uh, under Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shin and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. The stone that he puts up and he names Ebenezer was done so that the children of Israel would not forget in a day or a week, but literally they would remember for generations God's help in time of trouble. And uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the concept of raising your Ebenezer is, it comes from this story. The Hebrew word Ebenezer literally means stone of help. And basically, here was the issue. The nation of Israel were absolutely vulnerable. They could not save themselves. They did not deserve God's deliverance because they had been unfaithful to Him over and over and over and over again. And yet, when they humbled themselves and came to God, no matter how many times they had been unfaithful to God, God was still faithful to show His grace to them. And I think this is one of the most beautiful pictures because the truth of the matter is you and I have experienced the same thing if we're saved. We were lost and undone. We were vulnerable. We were not able to save ourselves. We certainly did not deserve God's help. And yet He came and delivered us because of His grace. Now as we come back to Psalm 4 and read verse number 1, I want you to think about this. As David is, is basically... Uh, doing this idea of remembrance of God's deliverance. He remembers the past times that God had delivered him. And so let's look at it again with this idea of this, this nation of Israel constantly being focused on God's past deliverances that help strengthen their faith for future problems. So verse number 1, he says, Hear me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me. And hear my prayer. And oh, that we can learn this lesson, that we can have our faith strengthened, that we can trust God 
If he's, if he's met the need in the past, certainly he will meet it in the future. If he has, without our merit, without our deserving it, delivered us in the past, surely he will hear our prayer now and deliver us in the future. What a great, great truth is found here in verse number 1. They were not able to save themselves, and yet God was faithful uh, to help them and uh, to keep his side of covenant with them. Uh, because he had said that if they would humble themselves and make him, uh, they would, that they would be obedient to him, that he would be their God. And when they did that, he kept his side of covenant, even though they had broken it. And by the way, uh, God still does that today, doesn't he? He still keeps his covenant with us. The one he made on Calvary when he said he would save us from our sins. And I'm thankful that Christ is our surety. As we get to verse number 2, we get to the second division of the chapter, or the psalm. And this is where David begins to address uh, his enemies in chapters, uh, verse number 2 through 5. <clears throat> and I want you to notice some of the things that he says here. He says, O ye sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love vanity and seek after leasing? He asks them how long they're going to continue to do this. Uh, they've dishonored him. It says that they've turned his glory into shame. They've shown him no honor. And they continue to do this. And they, uh, the, Bible, uh, the Bible says here, uh, not only have they turned their glory into shame, but he says, how long will you love vanity? And he asks them how long they're going to uh, uh, continue to do this behavior, which he basically is saying to them, it's vain. I don't know why you're doing this. What are you getting out of it? There's nothing that can be gained by this. And he asks them how long they're going to uh, go after this vanity. And then you see that word selah again. In other words, he's, he's addressing his enemies and he wants them to stop and think about it. Think about it. How long are you going to continue to do this? I think there's a great lesson for you and I to learn here. Because even though we like to put ourselves in David's shoes and say we're, we're David's character in this psalm, the truth is sometimes we find ourselves in the, in the role of the enemy, don't we? Sometimes we find ourselves in the ones that are doing vain things. This vanity that's taking place. He refers to them uh, as uh, being vain and there's the foolishness that there is in trying to seek after uh, his demise and trying to mock him and trying to ridicule him and trying to shame his glory and his honor. But as we get to verse number 3, it says, But no, and I want to stop there for a minute. If you're in the habit of underlining words, I would, I would underline those two words. Because isn't it just like the foolish to not be able to be taught things? They have to be told over and over and over and over again. May that be a, a word of warning to us. Be teachable. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Oh, that we fools despise uh, these things. They, they despise being taught. And so it says, But know that the Lord hath set him apart that is godly. So the godly are given this wonderful distinction of being set apart by God and for God. And he tells them this. He says, you need to know this. What you're trying to do is, is not going to work. It's vain. It's vanity. Uh, God has set the godly apart. And notice it says here, for himself. We're set apart by God and for God. And it would do us well to remember both of those. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. One person wrote this about it. He said, Oh, beloved, when you are on your knees, the fact 
of you being set apart as God's own particular, peculiar treasure should give you courage and inspire you with fervency and faith. Since He chose to love us, He cannot but choose to hear us. What a great, great truth. Oh, beloved, when you are on your knees, the fact of your being set apart as God's own peculiar treasure should give you courage and inspire you with fervency and faith. God could have used anything He created to do His work. But I'm glad He chose us. I'm glad I get to have a part in what God is doing. I'm glad He's chosen to use a sinful vessel, a broken vessel. I'm thankful that He's chosen to give us the great privilege of serving Him. And it ought to give us courage. It ought to give us fervency. And it ought to strengthen our faith. And then there's a charge that He gives to these enemies of His as He shows this conflict that they're in. He says, Stand in awe and sin not. I'm going to stop there for a moment. If you take time to look up the word awe in the Webster's 1828 Dictionary, it will actually reference this particular verse in Psalm 4. It's interesting that so often they show the context of it. And the definition that Webster's 1828 gives us is this. Fear, now listen carefully, fear mingled with admiration or reverence or reverential fear. In other words, we revere God in His holiness and His justice so much that it produces a fear in us regarding our sin. And the the psalmist said it this way in verse number 4. He says, Stand in awe and sin not. The problem that you and I battle is we usually reverse that. We don't stand in awe. And we sin. And by the way, any time that we do not have the right fear of God, and His view and His justice of our sin, it will always make us more prone and apt to sin. Any time that we get to this place where we do not have the proper view of God's righteousness and His holiness and His purity, for some reason in the day that we live, we have gotten this mindset that God is as lenient on sin as society is. And that is not the case. How much sin can God tolerate? None. What does it take to get to heaven? God can't allow sin into heaven. Can I get there if I only sin a little bit? No. I won't make it. It requires absolute perfection. Am I able to be perfect? (laughs) Certainly not. Neither are you. And that's the conundrum we find ourselves in. Then how do you get to heaven? If God requires perfection, and you and I cannot live a perfect life, then how in the world are we ever going to make it to heaven? The answer is by the grace that He gives us when He gets the righteousness of His Son and places it on our account. What a great, great picture of salvation. The psalmist is telling his enemies here, he says, Stand in awe. And sin not. What a great challenge it is to those, not only that are enemies of God, but even to those of us who are saved. That there ought to be a fearful reverence of a holy God. God is not the big man upstairs. He's not our buddy. He's not our pal. I'm thankful He loves us. 
but he is a holy and a pure and a righteous God. And we are nothing but sinners that deserve nothing but the penalty for our sin. And he has given us his love and his grace and allowed us to have the perfection of Jesus Christ placed on our account when we trust him as our Savior. He says, Stand in awe and sin not. And by the way, if you ever get to a place where somebody's teaching you that it doesn't matter how you live, God will take you as you are. I'm thankful God will take you as you are, but it does matter how you live. He doesn't leave you as you are. The Bible says, If any man be in Christ, he is a what? New creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. There's something new that comes alive inside of us the day we get saved that draws our hearts towards holiness, towards loving God, to have a desire for these things that helps us to have a better fear of God, knowing that we do not want to sin to displease Him or to bring His judgment upon us. I'm thankful I won't be judged for my sin in eternity, but I do still bear the consequences of my sin this side of heaven. And all the penalty that sin brings sometimes this side of heaven, the, the payment for that sin is far more oftentimes than we're willing to bear. That we would learn to stand in awe and sin not. And he said this, Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Regarding their sin, he said, Folks, you need to stop and think about this. And again, he's speaking here of the night hours, just as he's going to bed in the quiet time. And we find that word again, Selah. Stop and think about this. Dwell on it. Think about your sin. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, Surely a want of thought must be one reason why men are so mad as to despise Christ and hate their own mercies. Oh, that for once their passions would be quiet and let them be still, that so in solemn silence they might review the past and meditate upon their inevitable doom Surely a thinking man might have enough sense to discover the vanity of sin and the worthlessness of the world. Stay, rash sinner, stay, ere thou take the last leap. Go to thy bed and think upon thy ways. Ask counsel of thy pillow, and let the quietude of night instruct thee. I thought, boy, what a great way. Men don't talk or write that way anymore. But... When, when was the last time in the quietness of the evening after all the cares of the day have kind of dissipated and things are winding down the whole world seems to be falling asleep we ponder our day we look upon our own lives and we say Lord is there something that I need to be aware of in my life today maybe we don't even need to ask you maybe we're already aware of it we need to ponder why we did it we need to try to figure out, Lord, why am I continuing to do these things? So that we can stand in awe and sin not. I think one of the reasons we tend to live in sin as much as we do is because we don't take time to just stop and look at our own hearts and see if there's anything going on there that needs to be addressed. We get so busy and distracted with life that sin just becomes commonplace. And the psalmist says that we ought to have a time where we commune with our own heart upon our bed and be still. 
And then in verse number 5, he gives them a charge. He says, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Having considered the sin that was in their life, the only recourse they have is to put themselves on the mercy of God, to trust Him, and to allow the sacrifice of righteousness, these good works, to be performed in you because of your trust in the Lord. By the way, you'll never be able to accomplish the sacrifices of righteousness without trusting the Lord for it. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The truth of the matter is you and I don't know our hearts as well as God knows them. There's a lot of times we think, well, I I think I know this or I know that or I believe this or I believe that. The problem is we need to get the word I out of our vocabulary in that area and say, Lord, show me from Your Word. This book must become our absolute, absolute direction of our life. What it says goes. Whether I think better of it or not, this book is what I have to hold to. Because I want to put my trust in the Lord. I don't want to put my trust in me. I'm flawed. I'll be honest with you about that. And I think most of you know that. If the truth be told, you looked in the mirror this morning, you say the same thing about yourself. You're flawed. Your logic, your mindset, your decision-making ability is tainted with a sinful nature. The only thing we can trust in this world is the truth of God's Word. And so I would much rather trust what God says about things in Scripture than what I think about them. Oh, that we would learn to do this. And then verse number 6, he starts the final section of this psalm. He's now going to contrast not, not only what the unjust, (coughs) the ungodly enemies that he has, and the way that they're living, their vanity of life, uh, the fact that they're uh, sinning and not standing (coughs) excuse me, in awe. They're not communing with their heart upon their bed. They're not trusting in the Lord. In verse number 6, he switches gears and he starts to express what, as a godly man, what he has, what he feels. And he says in verse number 6, There be many that say, Who will show us any good? (coughs) Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. There's a lot of people out there, he said, that are saying, Lord, I want you to show me something. Uh, A lot of times we have to see to believe. We live in Missouri. It's known as the show me state. And the mindset of that is the people in Missouri tend to say, I don't believe it unless I see it. But the truth of the matter is, when it comes to things of the Lord, we don't have to see it. I'm reminded of Elijah when he was surrounded by the armies of uh, Samaria. And uh, his, his uh, uh, servant was wondering what was going to happen. They said, I don't know what we're going to do. What are we going to do? And Elijah prayed and asked God to open his eyes. And when he opened the servant's eyes, the servant saw all of the angels encamped around about with their... Uh, flaming swords drawn. And uh, he, he had told his servant, he said, those that be with us are greater than those that be with them. And, uh, but you will never find in that passage a place where Elijah saw them. It doesn't say that he saw them. Nor does it say that his eyes were open to see them. But he knew they were there. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just trust God without having to see here these folks are, and the psalmist says this, There be many that say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift out the light of thy countenance upon us. 
But then he turns the, the thing around in verse 7. It says, Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in time that their corn and their wine increase. I used to, when I read this, think that they were referring to those that were ungodly. But that's not who he's referring to. He's referring to verse number 6 of those who say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift out the light of thy countenance upon us. And he says, Thou hast put gladness in my heart. Notice this. And the gladness in my heart that you've given to me is more than in the time that their corn was increased or their wine was increased. When they did see the goodness of the Lord and they were glad for it, the gladness you put in my heart without having to see is greater than that. Verse number 8, I will both lay me down, notice this, in peace and sleep. For Thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. David doesn't need to see the goodness of God. He's content to have the peace of God, the gladness that God has placed in his heart. As I read this verse uh, this week and getting some notes together, I thought of the song, My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. Enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to Him. He'll never cast me out. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. My heart is leaning on the Word, the written Word of God. Salvation by my Savior's name, salvation through His blood. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. Oh, that our faith could be so strong as the psalmist. To say, there's some out there who say, who will show us any good? He said to me, He says, Thou hast put gladness in my heart. And it's more than when they see their corn increase and their wine increase. They see your goodness. I'm thankful that we can have that kind of faith in the Lord Jesus. We can lean upon Him and say, I don't need to see with my eyes to know that He saves me, to know that He died on Calvary to pay for my sin. That's enough. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. I love these psalms. They're great, great hymns that have been written that bring great truths to mind and to heart. And I hope they'll encourage you. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for Your Word. We pray that You'll bless it. And Father, may it be something that will encourage and strengthen us. Help us to learn from it. Help us to trust it. Without exception, may we trust it wholeheartedly.